Dave read our text earlier. If you could join me there in Acts chapter 8. We're studying the advance of the kingdom. In our sermon series about the advance of the kingdom, we do need to be careful to remember that the witness we're reading about includes the personal and individual witness of every believer. When the early chapters of Acts record the growth of the church, it's often through the public preaching ministry of Peter specifically and the other apostles. But in the first part of chapter 8, we notice a change. We saw it last week when the church is scattered by persecution and in that scattering, all the relocated Christians, it says, except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem, all those scattered Christians were the ones carrying the good news of Jesus wherever they settled and went about their lives. And it got us thinking on a different level. The spread of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom, isn't just through the pulpit ministry of certain preachers, but rather we must also be thinking that's good that someone preaches the good news. But the book of Acts is also unfolding this every Christian witness. And in the second part of chapter 8, we have the first full account of what we call personal evangelism. Up until now, there's been big stories and big numbers. Peter preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people are added to the church. Later, we see the numbers up to 5,000 and elsewhere we see they preached in villages and, and the gospel is succeeding, the kingdom is advancing. And then Luke records a story of just one person sharing with one other person the hope of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And suddenly there's no escaping the application of personal evangelism. There's, there's no saying, well, I, I don't craft sermons to preach publicly, or I don't speak to the masses, or a whole town isn't going to listen to me. Because God may not need you to do that. He may not ask you to do that. But he likely has asked you and will ask you to share the hope that is in you with just one person. One person that he leads you to. So this message isn't about preparing sermons. It's just about telling the good news. It's not about having lengthy conversations over months, though you may have the opportunity to do that. It may be measured in moments where your great call is to witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ. It's what we need to do this week. And so our theme from studying this story will be simple. You must advance the kingdom by your personal witness. So all of us hear this message. My calling may include speaking publicly at times. But like you, the calling is also to engage individually. 
with, with that coworker, with that neighbor, with that stranger met in, in a quiet moment, sitting on a bench taking a rest or waiting for someone in the department store. Endless opportunities, if you think back just to last week's travel schedule and how many places you visited, how many clerks you exchanged money with, how many people you saw in aisles of stores, how many people you work with. It's just the opportunities are everywhere, and it's not that every one of them becomes an immersive evangelistic experience. As we'll see from the text, it's, it's quite simple. The Spirit says, tell them. And you tell them. You say, well, how will I hear that voice? Well, walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Love the word this morning that calls us to personal evangelism. It's not complicated. Don't allow the devil to make this a a nuanced, complicated, high-level kind of Christianity for the elite, for the wordsmiths, for those comfortable in front of people. It's none of those things. The text is a simple story. It was read to you, and we could all understand it. And the, the message may be helpful to you in steering you through the story and seeing some things. I would encourage you to take the story home and study it this week and see if you could find your place in the story. You see, any story of personal witness involves three main characters. Every story, you say, well, I see two characters. There's Philip and there's this Ethiopian eunuch. Well, we'll consider them and and one other. So any story of personal witness or evangelism has three characters, and I want us to look at them. Number one, your personal witness involves the one who needs to hear the gospel. The one who needs to hear the gospel. That's the first character I want us to look at. See how Luke sets up this story by what he tells us about this guy that needs to hear the gospel. And really, before we go much further, I'm sure you have somebody in mind who you know needs to hear the gospel, or at least needs to believe it. Maybe they've heard it already. So this isn't some, you know, complex sermon and, oh man, how do I possibly understand that somebody needs to hear the gospel? No, we see them all the time. You see them on the news sometimes. They'll interview someone, clearly as lost as can be. Having bought into every possible idea of this world, they stand there as with a scholarly couple of letters after their name and their coat and tie, and they're just speaking foolishness. They're just lost. They need to hear the good news of the God who made them. How does Luke describe this one who needs to hear the gospel? I want to give you three words to think on and see if they aren't words that describe people you know. Number one, alone. Alone. Our text begins by telling us that the angel of the Lord said to Philip to go down this road from Jerusalem toward Gaza. So, You may or may not picture Jerusalem on a map. If you do, you're leaving Jerusalem and heading southwest toward the Mediterranean Sea. It's it's historic Philistine land from, you know, David and Goliath days. So he's taking this journey, and it leads him through a desert. And, And Luke 
uniquely and almost starkly drops that narration right into our story by saying, this is a desert place. Who's going to be there? Who's going to be in the middle of a desert? Why, why would he go there? It's because some of the people that need to hear the gospel are very much alone. You say, how, how can anybody be alone in the suburbs where we live? There's hundreds of thousands of people in our Kansas City metro. By the time you drive from your home to your workplace, you've seen thousands of them already. How is anybody really alone anymore? Don't we have social media? Well, you study social media and it's probably adding to the aloneness that people feel. Our task is simply to think that when we engage with someone this week, though we will not be in a desert physically, you may not know how alone that person is. They might be a very busy person. They may have some sort of family, but they may be very much alone. What if you are the most personal contact that person would have this week? And in a moment of hope, you, you say nothing to brighten the darkness. You serve as no billboard to point them toward something better. We need to remember that those who need to hear the gospel are alone. Busy, maybe. Surrounded by people, perhaps. Thousands of friends on Facebook, likely. But maybe still very much alone. Because so much of this life, apart from the fellowship we have with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a life of aloneness, a pursuit for something. Luke tells us this man was a eunuch. So not only is alone a good word to describe him, but outcast is a good word. Ironically. You see, to be a eunuch meant he was a man who either voluntarily or by coercion is castrated, thus unable to father children. This status is scorned by societies of the day, makes him a low class of human being. But here's the irony. This status is also highly valued in the courts of the pagan empires because in their thinking, this man with no family and thus no loyalty to a family would throw all of his energy and loyalties to the king or the queen to the kingdom. It's as if by physically removing family and potential for family, he would have only one place of belonging. And that belonging would be proved by loyalty to the kingdom. So while scorned as a human being, isolated without real relational family, without offspring and that God-given kind of natural process, all he had was a performance-based acceptance by his nation, by his king or queen. This man, we're told, was in the court of Candace, which is 
similar to the use of a word Pharaoh or Caesar. It's not a proper name as much as it is a title. In Ethiopia, which would be in this time the land of Cush, it was predominantly ruled by the matriarch. Even if there was a king, it was a figurehead, and the real power rested in the, the queen. So here's this official ruler in a significant role, kind of over the treasury. He's, he's got something to do, but he really has no place to belong. He's an outcast. We're told he had gone to Jerusalem for something described as worship. He must have heard that Jerusalem was a place for that. Maybe he knew, he knew something of the God of Israel. After all, centuries before, his queen, the queen of Sheba, had visited Solomon to glean from the wisdom and to wonder at the wealth of the Jewish empire. We do know this. In Jerusalem, he would not have been well-received. For one, he's a Gentile, which would automatically prevent him from certain courts of the Temple Mount. And worse, as a eunuch, having suffered some form of mutilation, deformity, or brokenness, he was excluded from the temple practices according to the law, Deuteronomy 23. Pretty graphically tells us that this kind of injury or intentional mutilation would exclude you from the fellowship of God's people at the temple or tabernacle. He was prevented Notice one other clue in our story. Luke gives, us to, gives it to us later in verse 36. After all of our account and after this light shines into the life of this man and he understands what Isaiah 53 is saying, he believes it and he wants to follow Jesus. They come to water and the Ethiopian man says, see here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? And it's an interesting word choice that's used here. But I think if we follow the story, the repeated emphasis on this man being a eunuch who had tried to go to Jerusalem to worship and would have been prevented from doing so as a Gentile in part and in full because of his condition as a eunuch. His natural thought now is, what else am I prevented from doing? He's an outcast. He's kind of come to grips to, with it. So his question is hesitant. What would prevent me from doing this? And of course, Philip's answer was nothing. And he baptizes him into a life of following Christ. His assumption was he wouldn't be able to be baptized either. And it just reminds us of this underlying theme in this story, which echoes the Old Testament prophets, that the gospel is for the outcasts. Not only the outcasts, of course, but there's indications all through Jesus' teaching even that it just seems like those who are physically needy, those who are broken, those who would gladly receive any kind of rescue have something in them that is receptive to the rescue that is offered in Jesus Christ. 
And so Jesus would teach how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Why? Because when you start talking about his need, he doesn't hear you. He surrounds himself in luxury and he thinks, what else could I need? Obviously, that's a spiritual blindness, his greatest need. But in physical things, he feels secure, and so he doesn't feel the need for anything else. Jesus used a parable to show us that many of the socially sophisticated will be too busy for the good news. And in the parable, the master who had set a feast sends the servants out, and he says, invite them. And they come back, and they say they don't want to come. They all have their own stuff they're doing. They're good without your feast. So he says, go and find the poor and the lame and the blind and compel them to come in that my house may be full. That was Luke that recorded that. And now Luke is the one telling us the story of compelling an outcast to believe that he can find a place of acceptance and belonging in the family of God. Be careful not to miss the outcasts. Luke describes this man as alone, as an outcast. And number three, I think the word thirsty would apply. Our text says he had come to worship, whatever he thought that meant. The text says he's reading the prophet Isaiah, however he got a hold of that scroll. And when asked, do you understand what you're reading? His answer is a long no, a frustrated kind of answer. How can I understand? I don't know what this prophet is talking about. Who is this that he is describing? He's thirsty. In our men's discussion Wednesday night from Romans 3, we were trying to wrestle with there is none who seeks after God. And what we realized is there's nobody that on their own is going to esteem Christ and value him and long for righteousness. But I do think there's a place for us to reckon with the great vacuum hole in every man who is thirsty, longing for something more. We're told in a different way in the story of Moses's faith in Hebrews chapter 11 that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. He identified as a a Jew and his people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And it gets us thinking that, yes, there is pleasure in sin for a season, but will that pleasure endure? Does it last? Does it truly satisfy? This man has a life of ease. He he has a job that is secure and successful. He's a somebody in that kingdom. But that's not enough for him. And so he makes this many, many day journey, weeks or months perhaps, to find something more. Be ready this week to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is in you. Because you're going through life as if you just gulped down that cold water on a hot day. You're living life in that brief 
sigh after drinking where you go, ah. But the people around you aren't. They're dry and they're parched. And like the madman floating on a raft in an ocean, they're willing to even drink that ocean water thinking it will help. And it doesn't. They're thirsty. Like the woman who came to the well in John 4. And Jesus says, I know exactly what you've tried. And tried again. And again. And again. And now again. And it still hasn't satisfied. You're thirsty. And I have living water. Those are the people you'll encounter this week. They're not going to look ragged and worn out. They may, I suppose. But their souls will be thirsty apart from Christ. You can point to the water of life. So number one, the first character in any personal witness is the one who needs to hear the gospel. Number two is simple enough as well. Your personal witness involves the one who is commanded to be a witness. The text points to three descriptions of our personal witness. Verse 27. After the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go, what does verse 27 tell us he did? He rose and went. This story of personal evangelism hinges right there. The prompting to speak the good news, will he do it? 29 kind of builds on it. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard what he was reading, and joined in that conversation. He entered into a relationship. And to speak practically, not as an analogy per se, we're not saying because the text says he entered into a conversation, we should enter into a conversation. But there's something there, right, that... We don't just sit around endlessly waiting for someone to ask like the Ethiopian did. Hey, what is the meaning of Isaiah 53 and this servant of God who was suffering for somebody else's sins? Have you ever been asked that? No. Anymore, does anyone ask you anything in public? No. You'll look like some kind of extroverted freak of nature if you sit down and start talking to a stranger next to you. But maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's even here in the text. Go. Say something. Engage with this person. Say hi. Say, hasn't the Lord given us a great day? They might not know the Lord or think he gives great days, but say something. You initiate a conversation. Remember, you're the bearer of the good news. You're the one who wants to say something. You want to get to the truth. We'll start somewhere. The second person in any encounter of personal evangelism is the one who's commissioned to, called to, be the witness. And faithful obedience is fundamental to our witness. The Spirit says, rise and go, we rise and go. 
The Spirit says, engage with him. Join yourself to him, and we join ourselves too. Just remember Luke's blunt narration. This is a desert place. It may not always look like the opportunity you were thinking on or hoping for. You may have been praying for someone for years, and you're waiting for them to to engage and maybe interact with your question or with a question that you could answer. And God might say, no, talk to that person. And that looks like a dead end to you. That looks like a desert place. In my troubled mind, when I first read this, I was picturing Philip asking, why am I in a desert? Oh, I thought he said dessert. I thought we were going to a dessert place, right? That one letter is such a key letter in the spelling, right? Do you remember how to keep desert and dessert separate in spelling? Surely you know the clue, right? You want more dessert, right? So you add more S's to the word. Isn't that genius? No. You're like, stick to the Bible. The whole, the whole spelling thing isn't working. But you'll remember it next time. Dessert. You want more, two S's. Philip wasn't going to the dessert place. It was the desert place. And it probably didn't make much sense to leave what seemed to be a successful ministry in Samaria. Whole cities are believing. Let's go back to Jerusalem with the apostles and see what's happening there. And then the angel says, go that way, out into the desert place. We're thinking, really? It's like throwing a wet blanket on our momentum. God's not about momentum. (laughs) He already guaranteed the momentum. The gates of hell can't prevail against the advance of the church. Momentum is there. But this kingdom is advancing not in vague generalities of people, groups, and such. It's one heart at a time. At the very least, in our humanity, we relate to Philip and thinking, this doesn't look like it's going to be very profitable. Why would I talk to that person? I I really think there's mental illness there. Anybody on the side of the road must be troubled. They're not even going to understand what I say. Maybe I'm not even safe. We have all these reasons that just pile up immediately because it doesn't make sense to us. It looks like that's a dead end. It's a desert place. But the text begins with faithful obedience. Faithful because we remember God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're actually much higher and much better. So we just obey. We trust and we obey. We plant the seed. We water the seed. Faithful obedience describes the one who is commanded to be a witness. Number two, Bible readiness. Look at verse 35. In answer to the eunuch's question, what is this talking about? The text says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Luke would remember well what his gospel his first book recorded. And that was after the resurrection, Jesus came back to the disciples in the upper room. 
And beginning at Moses, it says, he taught them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. And now we have that same Luke who knows what Jesus taught. Jesus took any scripture and could show you how it points to or leads to the reality of Christ. And now he's telling us that's what Philip does. What scripture are you reading? I can go from there to Jesus. I'll get there eventually. Give me a few minutes, but I can show you why that's recorded in the Bible. It's to eventually get us to an understanding of Jesus Christ. Philip starts with this specific question, but he knew his Bible well enough to jump into any text and get on with the one big story of Jesus. We know this in part because the text interrupts and says when they got to water, the Ethiopian eunuch's ready to talk about being baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ. So somehow, Philip had gone from Isaiah 53, this prophecy 700 years before Jesus even came, and he went then to Jesus who came, and he went to Jesus' teaching, and how we believe his teaching, and how we identify with him in baptism if we believe his teaching. He told him the whole story and the implications of the story so that the guy naturally was left with some kind of conclusion. Should I do that? Should I risk everything and trust Jesus for my salvation? Should I identify with him? What's that going to mean for my job when I get back? Doesn't matter. We're told he heard the whole story. And he dives in wholeheartedly and The rest of the journey is one of rejoicing, it says. And it happened because of faithful obedience and Bible readiness. We know what the Bible's about. It's not just a book to be disputed when some critic wants to find one little story and question whether that really was a miracle or how could this happen or you know what that one Old Testament law says, do Christians still do that? And they want to nitpick and it's all in a heart of unbelief. We should have a security about our knowledge of Scripture and an increasing knowledge of Scripture so that we understand it's a story that God is telling. And there's a lot of little stories that are telling that story. And there's a lot of pictures and types and shadows in the Old Testament that all find their fulfillment in the New Testament in Christ. We should know that. That's why we studied at the beginning of this year the books of the Bible and how the different sections point to Jesus Christ. Why we could get kind of bogged down at first reading through Leviticus and all these sacrifices and formats and all the ingredients to make up the incense and what parts of the animal get burned and what parts don't and what you can eat and what you can't. All that was showing us something that this is a long and tedious process of animal sacrifices that create in us a longing for a once-for-all sacrifice. Enough of this animal sacrifice. Does this ever end, we ask in reading Leviticus? And the answer is, yes, it does end when Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice. So we should know the story. Philip did. And he jumped in, hey, where are you reading? Okay, that's what this is talking about. Here's what it's predicting, and here's how God kept that promise. 
We need to be able to do that. Faithful obedience, Bible readiness, and a Jesus focus. Beginning with that scripture, verse 35 says, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's that Greek word for evangelism. Not as a full-time ministry capacity, but just literally as those English words come to us, someone who tells the good news. So know your Bible and keep learning it. Then follow the Spirit's leading to engage with people with the ultimate goal, either in that conversation or somewhere soon down the road, to tell them about the hope that you have. The good news about salvation, forgiveness, belonging, and joy that are found in Jesus. So your personal witness involves the one who needs to hear the gospel. Maybe you have someone in mind. Your personal witness also involves you, the one who's called to be a witness. And number three, your personal witness involves the one who is merciful to save sinners. You see, we share the good news, but we are not the effectual convincing agent of change. We don't save anybody. I can't twist their arm. I can't make them believe. As Jonah preached every day for over a month, salvation is of the Lord. That's how salvation happens. It's of the Lord. Now, the Bible tells us much more than Jonah preached. It unfolds how that salvation comes to us and all of it beautiful words that describe it, justification, sanctification, adoption. But keep it simple. Salvation is of the Lord. So any personal witness will involve someone who needs to hear this gospel news, the one telling it, and the God of salvation, the one who is merciful to save sinners in Christ Jesus. See this mercy in the text. Be reminded, number one, of the mercy of divine initiative. In verse 26, our story is, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, God had a plan. God was aiming at a target. When I read this story, I think of it like zooming in and out on Google Maps. We were in Samaria, we were up close, and they're preaching in all the towns there, and people are being saved. And then we zoom out, and we kind of see Samaria, Jerusalem, and this account of go down this road to Gaza. And now we start zooming in, and we realize there are no towns here. There are no people to see. I can zoom in anywhere on that road, and there, there's nothing there. But in zooming in in our story, we see this, this one little entourage, this, this one guy in the barren desert of Gaza. One man crossing a dusty desert, heading back to a pagan nation. And God sends a witness. We often want to wring our hands about someone out there some tribe, some people somewhere in unbelief and, and, and they've never heard. We don't have to worry about it. God's got it under control. He knows how to get his gospel wherever it needs to be. God sends a witness. 
as if the first part of Acts 8 tells us of the masses, the 99 sheep that are safe in the fold in Jesus' story. And then the second part of Acts 8 tells us about the one sheep that is still lost in the wilderness. Yes, huge success, Jerusalem, Samaria, thousands coming to faith in Christ. Looks like the sheepfold is pretty full, but there's this one lost sheep still. And Jesus said the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Remember, Jesus says of himself, the son of man came to seek and to save the one that was lost. And that's unfolding here in our story. This is the plan of God to save sinners. He goes after them. He seeks them and saves them. Divine initiative. Number two, there's the mercy of promise keeping. God had promised through the prophets that the gospel would reach places like Africa. Cush is the Old Testament name. When we read Ethiopia, we turn to our modern map and we find it a little further south. In Bible times, it would have been a much broader region in North Africa. The land of Cush. Hear what God had said about Cush. Psalm 68, verse 31 and following. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. The psalmist predicted the day when the gospel would be the treasure of the people of Cush. The psalmist continues, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. Selah, or think of that. Just let that hang for a moment in the air. That selah seems to be a Hebrew expression of a musical idea of, of just pause, much like a fermata in our modern uh, English or musical writing. So let, let that tone just resonate for a moment and echo off the walls that a psalmist, a, a Jewish psalmist, the people of God in the Old Testament was predicting that the people of God who were not the people of God, those people in Cush would eventually be brought into the kingdom. Those Gentiles, those pagans, the Jews would have thought. They would sing God's praise. Zephaniah, the prophet in chapter 3, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, they shall bring my offering. He calls the African peoples his worshipers through Zephaniah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. In the day, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And the prophet Isaiah says they would come from every nation, but he specifically, by the Holy Spirit, lists this nation of Ethiopia, this region of Cush, 
So in Acts 8, when we see this man from Cush hearing the gospel by the targeted aim of God, we are reminded that salvation is God's divine initiative and it is his faithful promise keeping. He saves. It's what God does. So in your personal witness, remember this. It is not just the chance meeting with that person. It is the hand of God keeping his promise to get his gospel to his people. Finally, we see this mercy in the powerful revelation of God. Verses 32 and 33 show us that this Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, we read of this suffering servant. Servant of who? Of God himself. Sent by God to suffer. What kind of service is that? Why would he be sent to suffer? It's the Old Testament introduction to the the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That someone would take our place. I would sin. My transgression, my guilt but it would be charged and laid on someone else and they would suffer in my place so that I could go free. Isaiah would argue that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. We've sinned. And it was God's servant who took our punishment. His language is, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He suffered the chastisement of our transgression. And by his death, we are healed. He was the substitute. He was God's plan to save. Philip unfolded salvation by faith in the person of Jesus from a prophecy 700 years before in Isaiah 53. What a message of hope. In thinking on this scroll of Isaiah, there were these big scrolls and they would unfold and, and they would list out the prophecy. They wouldn't have had these divisions like Isaiah chapter 53. It was just the, the flow of the text. It just kept going. And one would have to wonder if in the reading of 53 and the telling of the story, Philip just naturally would point a few lines over. It would be chapter 55 in our Bibles. And there in verse 1, in language significant to a finance secretary, the Lord says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. What good news for the one who understands money and costs and is now hearing you can't have enough money to buy this because you come without money to partake. And then you have to wonder if they kept reading to chapter 56 of Isaiah where the Lord speaks specifically to those who are called the eunuchs. In Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3, the Lord says through his prophet, 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, unable to reproduce, that is. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. The great scorn of the eunuch was that he would have no place, no belonging, no family, no name to continue on. And the promise of God in identifying with Christ is that you will always belong. You will have a place and a name. The Hebrew is Yad Vashem. It's the name of the Holocaust Museum in Israel. For all those that were lost and seemingly forgotten, the great monument stands so that they will always be known. They will have a place and a name of remembrance. That's God's promise, but it's not just because of the tragedies in our world. It's because of the tragedy of sin. And God says, you will have a place You will have a name by faith in Jesus. Even the outcasts, even the foreigners, the Gentiles, even the eunuchs. I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And he concludes in verse 8, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others. This is the great hope of the gospel that Philip unfolded specifically to this man wandering through the desert. Know this week that when you speak of the good news, God is at work. His mercy is being extended. His invitation through you to that unbeliever is come. Come thirsty ones and drink. Philip must have concluded his conversation by telling the eunuch that before Jesus went to heaven, he told his disciples to make other disciples by teaching them what Jesus taught and by baptizing them so they will identify with Christ. The eunuch asks that hesitant question, what prevents me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. They stop the chariot. They go down into the water. He's baptized And it says he continues on his journey rejoicing even as apparently almost miraculously Philip seems to disappear from the scene. The spirit takes him somewhere else. Scholars will compare this story of Philip, this prophet-like evangelist to Elijah of old and the being carried away to something else. What do we do with this story? Brothers and sisters, ask God to open your eyes to the lost around you, the obvious ones and the not so obvious, the ones you will almost may be willing to engage and the ones you're a bit hesitant to engage. View unbelievers as thirsty, looking for something to satisfy, looking for a cause or key word, looking for an identity. God's not opposed to you using that language. He just did in Isaiah 56. I'll give you all the identity you need in Christ. Foster that heart of mercy. Even as you pray that prayer for God to open your eyes to the lost, you'd better keep 
developing your understanding of Scripture because somebody's going to ask you a question and your task will be to get from that question to an answer that speaks of Christ. Be aware that God may use you as his mouthpiece this week. Are you ready? We briefly talked of baptism. Some of you may need to be baptized. You're repenting of sin. You're believing in Jesus, and you've never been baptized. You've never identified with him publicly saying, I'm with Jesus. We're going to baptize this summer. A few of you have already talked to me, but there may be others. There's some booklets there in the lobby on the table. You can pick one up and study through what the Bible says. Then we'll talk about it. And we'll let you have a public display of your allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Friends, you have received power, Acts 1 says, to be a witness. May God help us to be faithful. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this story May we find ourselves this week walking in Philip's steps, steps of obedience, steps of yielding to the Spirit, steps of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord, to the task that is ours, pointing thirsty people to a well of life that springs eternal, Jesus, our Savior in whose name we pray, amen.